series working through the Trinity just over January, over a four-part series. Our normal process is to work through books of the Bible and we're returning to the book of Acts uh, beginning February. And also the very first one as we return to Acts this year, um, Keith Hill, who's the um, heads up the um, Christian Students thing up at uh, USQ, um, will be preaching the very first in that series starting in February. So we're up to God the Father, hence why that's written on the screen behind me. So let's open up in prayer as we look to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the eternal, good, perfect, loving Father. We thank you that because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, we can come before you in prayer. We thank you that you are a God who desires to make himself known and that you loved and cared enough for your creation to send your son into the world so that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, the Bible is not just a collection of words by people, but it is your very word to us. And as we consider what your word says, how you disclose yourself to us, help us to see you more clearly and to deeply love you and to know the one who has called us to himself. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It sounds a bit bigger if you say, this is my 10th year of pastoral ministry, rather than saying that I've just completed nine. But if you say you're going into 10th, it sounds bigger and grander. Not as in terms of a bragging point in time. But when you start to think about significant numbers, you start to reflect a little bit. And I was thinking the other day, what in that 10 years or almost 10 years of ministry, what are some of the biggest observations that I've seen during that time? And I think the biggest thing that I've learnt about people is how much upbringing or past experiences shape the way people do things today, think things today, and how they act. And not just in Christian circles, but every area of life. Anyone who's got married remember those early days when you first start to live together and you realise your spouse does some weird, weird things that make no sense whatsoever and you think, why would anyone in their right mind do things like that? You don't have to be married, even if you just shared a house with someone, you've experienced this. But then in the marriage scenario, you might be at the family, the in-laws for Christmas or for a family dinner or something, and then you see their mum or dad doing that same weird thing and you're like, ah, that's where you got it from. And likely their parents did the same if it wasn't something that was um, technological that didn't exist back then. Often, unless you ask them, they probably don't have a a real reason why they do things that way other than that that's what we've always known they probably before even being asked probably never stopped to think is this even a good way to do it why do we do it and it's not just the practices that we do sometimes it's our opinions you might have grown up in a real strong holden loving family And you've just decided for all eternity, Holden's are great, Ford's are terrible. 
without having a slightest reason or logic to answer why you think that. But when it comes to Christian circles, it could be some of the traditions of how you've always thought we should do things as a church. Maybe some of your convictions about particular moral or ethical things that the Bible may not be particularly clear about. And maybe when you get asked about why you think a church should do things a particular way or why you think a Christian should respond in this way and you get questioned, you think, well, actually, I've never thought about does the Bible say something about this? It's just what I've always thought. Because our experiences, our upbringing does affect the way we view the world. Now, I say that as, as a pre-warning because we need to be wary and aware of that, that our upbringing and our experiences do not distort or hinder us from hearing from God what his word says to us. Today, as we're working through our series on the Trinity and we're looking as God the Father, we need to be very careful that we don't think about our own Father and project upon our Heavenly Father to say that he is going to be somehow like the Father that we have or haven't experienced in this life. See, as we look at God as Father, the Bible's not saying that God is like a Father. The Bible says God is and has been for all eternity the Father. There was never a time when he wasn't the father. There never will be a time when he's not the father. If there is a comparison to be made as an earthly father, one should be looking to our heavenly father to see what fatherhood really is like. Last week we began our first in our series on the Trinity. Trinity just means a combination of two words, tri, which means three, and unity meaning one, the idea that there is one God for all eternity who for all eternity have been in a loving union of three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And I said often we are much spiritually poorer. When we think, we hear that word, we think that somehow the Trinity is something complicated, boring or irrelevant. Last week we saw how relevant it is. The the Trinity is so personally involved in our life in, in bringing about our salvation and even our ongoing daily walk with God. When it comes to the salvation, we see that our salvation is an idea which comes from the Trinity, is achieved through the three persons of the Trinity and brings us into fellowship with all three persons of the Trinity. Coming to a right view of who God is as the triune God explains to us who we are, how we became who we are, why we do what we do today. And today as we focus specifically on the Father, the idea is to get a better understanding of who the Father is, how he relates to us, how we relate to him. Not to say you've got better answers at a Christian trivia night, but that we might love him, we might see him more clearly. This morning we're going to look through what are the primary functions that the Bible speaks about uh, in relation to the Father, how the Father relates to us. What if I haven't had a good model of fatherhood? And then wrapping up with some 
concluding thoughts. Primary functions of the Father. Before we talk about primary things which the Father seems to do, we need to acknowledge that God is the Father from all eternity. There was never a point anywhere when he became the Father or a point when he will cease to be the Father. And the same could be said of the Son and the Spirit. There was never a point when the Son became the Son and all the Spirit became the Holy Spirit. When James speaks of our Heavenly Father, he says, Every good and perfect gift comes from the, down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or no shadow due to a change. Our God, our Father, changes not at all. He's eternally been a father because he's eternally had the son. There wasn't a time when Jesus became the son. Even the dynamics of the way in which the persons of the Trinity relate to one another don't change over time. The son submits to the father from all eternity, does now and will do for all eternity. It's important, I repeat, particularly when we're doing persons one week at a time, that I repeat something we looked at last week. Every person in the Trinity is 100% completely God. Them having a different primary function doesn't mean that one has got greater strengths in one area than the other. Because if one of them was weaker than the other in any area, that is the measure by which that one would not be God. They're all 100% God in substance, lacking nothing. Where they differ is in the way in which they function, in terms of the primary things which they do, particularly how they relate to one another and how they relate to creation. When we look at both creation and salvation, we see primarily that the Father is the one who plans and who directs. Yet the Son, Jesus Christ, tends to be the primary instrument through whom the Father works through. We all know the famous opening line of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And as the Apostle John is introducing Jesus in his gospel, he wants to show the continuity between that statement as he introduces Jesus, saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word we read down in verse 14 of that chapter was the Word that came flesh and dwelt amongst us, talking of Jesus who was with God and who was God, who in the beginning was with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So who created? Did the Father create? Did the Son create? You get to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 7. You see everything was made by Jesus, through Jesus and for Jesus. Does that mean that Genesis 1-1 is somehow a contradiction? 1 Corinthians 8, Paul kind of blends these two ideas together to give the clarity of how they don't contradict. Saying, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we see the initiative and plan of the Father through Jesus and through whom we exist. 
And we looked at it a little bit last week, so we won't go in the same detail, but we saw the same thing with regards to salvation. God the Father chooses from all eternity. God the Father sends the Son into the world. But Jesus Christ makes salvation possible by his death and resurrection on the cross. But to specifically see the Father and the Son relating together in his earthly ministry, in John chapter 6, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but shall raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So creation and redemption is a work of the Trinity, initiative and planned by the Father, but Jesus is the primary instrument through whom these things both happen. Now, that's not the only way roles in which the Father is involved in the world in which we live in. But they're just the couple we primarily wanted to look at. But so how does the Father relate to us? Something we said last week, there is no Christian who can say, it's just me and Jesus, or it's just me and the Holy Spirit. Now, the grammar Nazis say, well, if you're going to get it wrong, you must at least say Jesus and I, or the Holy Spirit and I. But we saw that we are invited into the fellowship with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We are not just me and Jesus, me and the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we considered last week is even in our prayer life is a Trinitarian act. Where we come towards God the Father in the name of Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done, we see Jesus is the one at the right hand of the Father who intercedes on our behalf the Spirit who directs us in things that we bring before God, the Father in prayer, and also, we're told, who intercedes according to the perfect will of God on our behalf. But how do we speak to our Father in prayer? I've come across people who say, well, I don't want to really bother God. Now, he's got plenty of other more important things to worry about than the things that I might want to say. We need to remember We have a loving Heavenly Father who cares and loves to hear from his children. Now, if you grew up with a father who didn't listen or got angry every time you're like, Dad, Daddy, then put that idea out of your mind. Do not project that upon our Heavenly Father who loves and wants to hear from you. It's an expression of our dependence upon him. There's never a time when he's too busy, got too much on his plate, when he can't listen or doesn't want to listen. There's never a time when he's disinterested or is like, oh, not that voice again. But before we consider how we talk to him, here's an interesting thought and challenge to think about. When people say to you, how are you or how was your week? How do you normally reply to that? Now, I know as Aussies, we just usually say good, or if we're feeling particularly wordy, we might say pretty good. But on those rare occasions when you actually say more than good or pretty good, 
Do your answers primarily orient around the things that aren't going well in your week? Or do you focus on the things that have been good and acknowledge that you are in a relationship with a God who gives good gifts? Because as I considered my own ways I speak about this, I realise I often do the Aussie pretty good and then I might say something, but Kenzie hasn't been sleeping well, we've been kept up late or something like that, and realise how commonly I will go towards the things that aren't as good as they could be. And I wonder, what does that communicate? If the primary thing that I think about communicating when people ask me about my week are the negative things... Now, presumably, every single person in this room has got heaps of good things going on in their life on a daily basis. And unwittingly, when I make statements like that, I proclaim I don't really thank God or acknowledge that God is abundantly giving good things every day. But what I do remember is there's stuff that I don't like going on and and I think that's not fair. We should acknowledge that everything we have comes from God. When we went through 1 Thessalonians, we're told, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? If we go back to a verse we've already looked at in James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to a change. Every single thing that you experience which is good comes from your heavenly father, even whether you're a Christian or not. The air you breathe, everything you have, everything you enjoy, all the beautiful things that you see, all of that comes from our heavenly father, is a gracious gift from a God who has chosen to give things to us. I want you to imagine you've got a generous friend, and you probably, most people have known someone who is just really generous, the sort of person who, who just gives you things all the time, they just buy gifts, they do things for you all the time. We would never think of not thanking that person. What I tend to notice is that we tend to tell people about how nice and how generous this person has been toward us. But God doesn't just give us occasional gifts, does he? It's not like uh, maybe every couple of months God might give us something nice. God is blessing us abundantly every single minute of the day. And it's right that we should learn to be giving him thanks. And the more aware that we become that everything comes from him, the more thankful we're likely to become. And I think we are so stuck in a point of we deserve everything that we fail to see his goodness and give him thanks. And I think I'm just going to break the rules. You're allowed to pray mid-sermon. I just want to bring that before God in prayer for us before we move on. God, we acknowledge that you are the giver of all good gifts. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've just taken things for granted or just presume that we deserve these things. Lord, everything you give, you give is an act of grace and blessing. Help us to be more aware of all of your provision for us that we might be thankful, that we might communicate that thanks to you and to those who live around us. Amen. But as we're thinking about thanking God, remember 
He sent his son Jesus into the world for our benefit. The very reason we have a relationship with him and all of these blessings is because he sent his son. So I'd say we don't thank God enough, but something you may not have considered, but it was very evident when Samuel put out the invitation this morning, we don't ask enough. Have you ever noticed when you ask people for prayer, dead silence. Anything anyone would like to ask God for? Nothing. Sometimes people think, oh, my thing's not really that important, particularly to raise in a, in a church service. Now, I don't, I don't want to go down the path of kind of like the name it and claim it. So somehow if you just say you want anything you want, if you put in Jesus' name at the end of it, then whew, you've got a fancy new car and a private jet. It's not the way it works. But do we really hold back because we think we're bothering God or we think that, no, this is something we'd really like and even it's even something that's good and godly, but we think it's not that significant, I won't ask God. Maybe God's got more pressing things he could be working on. Because as we keep going on to read what James says further about this God who gives, in chapter 4 he says, you desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It says that it's human nature. There are things that we want and we want them so badly for ourselves, we'll do anything for them. But then he goes on to say, you don't have because you don't ask. Or you do ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's saying, I am a God who wants to give you good things, but sometimes you're just asking for selfish things. Things you don't really need. God wants to give good gifts to his children. We don't have often because we don't ask. Or when we do ask, it's for something really trivial, insignificant, not important. Or it's just purely selfish. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow spiritually in your life, you ask your God who wants to give you the things to help you grow in your spiritual life. Sometimes we ponder, how good would it be if this person that I've known for a while that I've been talking to about Jesus, how good would it be if they came to know and trust in Jesus? Ask. Or we think, how good would it be to know the way in which God has gifted me is that I might use it to be a blessing to my church and to others. Ask. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And by good gifts, I don't mean fancy cars and elaborate silly things like that. But if you ask for things that are good in the sight of God, he wants to give you those things. So if there's ever a a case for the name it and claim it, if something is promised in the Bible for all Christians, then you have got a good case. God, I plead with you, I want this. You have promised it to me. By promise, I mean things that he's promised to everyone, to all believers who belong in Christ, and show him, I'm hungry. I want these things that you promise you give. 
There's something that I've learned from life as a father with kids. If you promise your kids something, if they ask you once, they don't think, oh well, it's not going to happen and I just won't ask again. If you promise your child something, they will ask again and again and again because they know you have promised. And sometimes people think, if I ask God over and over again, somehow that's a sign of my lack of faith. But the opposite is true. You're asking again and again. If God has promised something to all believers, to ask it again and again shows you believe he has promised it and that he is the one who gives it. So ask. Ask for the things that he promises to all believers. There are things that he speaks about that not to all believers, but to some. Ask. He cares, he listens, he gives good gifts. This is the one who sent his son Jesus Why we were hostile to him. Who sends his Holy Spirit. But fatherhood's not just about being nice caring and giving gifts. Discipline is part of being a good, loving father. In Hebrews, the writer says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you who are illegitimate children are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines for us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now I need to be aware that the word Discipline is going to be a sensitive word for some people in this room. It carries some bad baggage. But discipline could be described as an action which is done in love to encourage a positive change. Good fatherly discipline is not something which is done in anger as a payback for something you've done. It's an action in love to bring about a good change, not an action done in action to give you payback. We've seen God's character at work. This is a God who loves and sent his son into the world to a people who were rebellious and hostile toward him. His disciplining is not vindictive. He cares enough to guide us towards the things that are best for us. Like even the other day, we have had a few little difficulties with Kenzie and just seeing her out there on her own, stopping her from playing. She didn't like it. It wasn't a major thing. But she saw that it was corrected that you don't hit your sister. God and his discipline is just another facet of his love and his care for us. But there are some who are reluctant to speak about the fatherhood of God because I think some people, and a lot of people, do not have a good experience of fatherhood. Does that, should that change our view of God? 
Does having a bad experience of a father figure mean that we'll have a bad understanding and a bad experience of God? Maybe. I say maybe for this reason. Maybe if you allow it to, if you project on God the false ideas that you've seen presented in a person in this world, or maybe not, and it should not, if you allow God to show you for himself who he is, not to define God by what you've experienced in this world, but let God, as he's spoken to us in his word, to say what type of father he is. I've heard people say, if someone's had a really bad father experience, they need to experience a good father model in this life before they can understand and appreciate God as a father. No, they don't. That'd be like me saying, if I had a lot of bad relationships, I'd need a good girlfriend before I can have a good wife. I want us to think the very fact that we consider some fathers to be not good fathers or who neglected in some way says that deep within us we understand that fatherhood should be something very different than that. We would just roll with it and say, well, that's just how it is otherwise. We shouldn't avoid about talking about God as father just because someone's had a bad experience. The fact that they've got a bad thought about a father they've experienced says they are longing and wanting something a father figure that is better than that now that doesn't mean that we're talking about following jesus as a solution to father figure issues i mean there is a benefit there is there is healing and blessing that comes as as you come into relationship with a loving heavenly father but the good news of the gospel is that a loving father who created us through jesus that we've rejected, turned our back upon, loved us enough to send his son into the world to bear the punishment of our rebellion against him that we could be reconciled to him. When we become children of God, we are not only united with Christ, we enter into fellowship with the Father, Son and Spirit. We may have known in this life one type of father, but we get the perfect an eternal father. We may have known a father who was full of neglect. In our heavenly father, we see one who is loving, caring, who blesses. We might have experienced one who is absent. But in our heavenly father, we have one who is always present, always with us, living with us. We might have experienced a father who's disinterested. We find in our God a father who's always available, desiring our best. Or we might have experienced a father in this life who was abusive. Yet in our Heavenly Father we find one who is gentle, caring, protecting, nurturing. We may have experienced a father in this life who is erratic. Who's good one day, you never know which day he's going to be having. In our Heavenly Father we have a God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. If your view of God as Father has been distorted by your experience... Look upon your heavenly Father and see the beauty that is there. Don't allow your experience to define him, but allow your experience of God to show you the love of the Father. Your bad experience doesn't hinder coming to a right view of your heavenly Father. If anything, there's great comfort and healing in experiencing 
a good Father God. So in some concluding thoughts, if you are a Christian, that is, if you have realised that you have rebelled against God and you are thankful that he sent Jesus Christ into the world, you have repented of your past living, you say thank you to Jesus for his death, you want to live for him in relationship with him, you have a heavenly father who loves and cares about you. I've come across countless Christians who feel like God doesn't love them or that God shouldn't love them. Whether it's because of a bad experience with a father who kind of expressed constantly a a lack of love or whether it just comes out of a low self-esteem. If that is you, I want you to hear this. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly to bring you to God. While we were at our worst, no care whatsoever for God, actually distancing and not wanting him, he sent his son, Jesus. If that's what he did when we were at our worst, what is it like to be in a restored relationship with that heavenly father? He's not waiting to pounce on your every mistake or hoping to find a reason not to love you. There's a profound truth in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. He's just said a few verses earlier, talking about those who would believe on account of those who would hear the gospel through the apostles. He says, I in them and you in me that you may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. That is a profound statement. Jesus says for those who would follow Jesus, who would become children of God, that they would know that God the Father loves them as much as the Father loves his son Jesus Christ. Just let that sink in for a moment. If you are in Christ, your heavenly Father loves you the same extent to which he loves his own son, Jesus. I've got not much left to say, and I've referred not a slightest bit to our Bible reading, which is very unusual here. But but sometimes when people hear that reading that we had read before the sermon, people read and go, oh, isn't that nice? I'm more special than a bird. I'm more special than grass. And then for a moment you think, hang on, on the way to church, I hit a bird and I didn't even really care about it. So maybe that's not a big statement at all. But if that's how you've looked at those verses, you've missed the point. The point is, if God cares for birds that you may have hit, it's all right, as long as it wasn't intentional, how much more Is he going to care and provide for those whom he sent his son into the world to die for, who come into a unique relationship, who are his children, that he loves with the same love that he loves his own son, Jesus? And because you have a precious and unique relationship with God the Father, he says, 
Why would you just ask for things that everybody else who has no relationship would ask for? Of course I'm going to give you those things. Ask for things of the kingdom. It is my good desire to give you those things. It's my good pleasure. You have a father who loves you, cares for you, who wants to give you good things to help you grow up into maturity in Christ. He wants us to love and adore him, to ask and receive his good gifts, to acknowledge his goodness and give him thanks that his children might know, experience and share of the joy of our relationship with our Father made possible through Christ with a world who is hurting and suffering and who do not know him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a rich privilege that we can call you our Father. That the Almighty God, who didn't need a single thing, didn't need to even create but a God who loves to give of himself. And even when we messed it up by saying we didn't want you, we wanted to live our own way, you provided the very thing that we our souls long for, a restored relationship with God. Not just uh, wiping the record clean so that we can just kick on with life, but, Lord, that we might have intimate fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, both now and for all eternity. Lord, we thank you that you are deeply involved in our lives and that you deeply care about the intimate details of our life, that we can come before you at any and every time knowing we're never bothering you, that, Lord, that you won't choose not to listen, And that the things that you promised to give us, you will give us and you want to hear us, even if we're praying over and over again for them, as we express our trust and faith that you are a God who delivers true on your word every time. We thank you for all your riches and all your abundance, blessings and grace you provided in and through Christ for us. In Jesus' name, amen.